Welcome to the MPTO Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is Dr. Alison Fox Robichaud. Dr. Alison Fox Robichaud is a Hamilton Health Services Care Physician, Director of Medical Education, a professor at McMaster University, and a Scientific Director of Sepsis Canada. Welcome to the show, Doctor, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be talking to you. I just wanted to make sure that we bring sepsis awareness during Sepsis Awareness Month and Sepsis Canada's work and research to improve patient outcomes. According to the recent study, there is an estimated 75,000 cases of sepsis occur in Canada and likely causing 18,000 deaths each year. We all know for survivors that sepsis has a long-term side effect, but many members of the public will still do not know what sepsis is. So can you tell us a little bit about what sepsis is and how does, it, how does one get it? So simply, sepsis is an infection gone really bad. It's an infection that you know may have started in a scrape or a wound or your appendix or a pneumonia, but mm. it's the body's abnormal response to that infection that starts to shut down organs, require life support, um, and for some people, um, ending up with loss of limb. Right. So why is there so little known info about sepsis now you said in a recent interview more people die of sepsis from the top three cancers combined yeah so so i think there's a couple of reasons people have always known the term septicemia um but have thought because we have modern antibiotics that it's all been cured we don't see it anymore part of it is Healthcare professionals not educating the public about it. So it's a gap. You think about all of the education that's done around strokes and heart attacks and being aware of cancers. And then just think about it. So worldwide, we know one in five people may die from sepsis, right? Um, We know that it does cause infections in many low-income countries. Those numbers that I quoted for Canada are our best estimate. We really don't know how many people are septic in Canada, and that's part of one of the goals of Sepsis Canada and the network is to get a better handle on how many people are septic. And then I think the other thing is people talk about infections, but they don't realize, and I'm going to say people in general, and that may include health professionals, that when people require support or their organs are not working, when they've got an infection, that's sepsis. Some of the sickest ones will require an ICU, but many people, it's coming into hospital. And for some people, this is the last event of their life. You can think about an elderly person who may be immobile, who may be in a nursing home. Some of that we can probably prevent, but some of it is because other organs are already not functioning well. Their brain's not functioning well. They've got heart disease, whatever that may be. What other they may have kidney disease and sepsis is the last event. So we often like to think about sepsis as what can we prevent, what infections can we prevent, and what is the our bacteria and our immune system just failing to be able to control the infections that are present all of the time. Um, I'm taking a pause because I'm also a sepsis survivor. Yeah. Um, and. Or maybe we'll, we'll explore it because 
in my experience as a patient, you get told you had sepsis or it's septicemia or yeah. you had blood poisoning or you yeah. had this. But then when you place it in a term where it's an infection, okay, so then does my bone infection as sepsis is my infection on my wound that gets treated with antibiotic sepsis or does it result in the septic shock that happens to the body? I don't think that's fully explained to the patient. I mm -hmm. think that that just, well, you have an infection, here's some penicillin or here's some whatever antibiotic there is. It goes away in 10 days and then it's sort of forgotten. And so now I see where the data kind of falls on the wayside of accounting for what was affected or what what resulted in a sepsis. Yeah. And and I think, you know, even physicians are confused by times. Part of that is due to the fact that over the past 30 years of, of my career training, that definition for what is sepsis has changed three times. Okay. <laughs> so, so even when I got sepsis to this day, it's different now. <laughs> well, it's different in terms of how we categorize it, right. let me say. I, right. it, it really hasn't changed. It's a bad response to an infection. We now, right. part of the gap was we don't understand who's going to get septic from who doesn't. We got a few clues. And we also don't have any simple tests to say, you've just got an infection versus you've now got sepsis. We don't, you know, you come into the hospital with a heart attack, there's a blood test and we can tell you right away that your heart muscle's getting damaged. We can look at cardiogram, your heart muscle's not functioning, the electrical system's not functioning. We don't have quite the same thing for sepsis. And that's part of what I'm chasing as a scientist is trying to find out, can I find a marker or a series of markers that says you have, not only do you have an infection, but you have sepsis associated with that infection. Mm -hmm. Now, in the amputee community, and you brought this up earlier that, you know, the causes of limb loss, sepsis is a common thread with the amputee community. And that's, again, going back to that terminology is when you ask someone who's lost a limb, they'll say, oh, I had sepsis, I had septic mm. shock. Does it always result in that? Or is it because, uh, again, and I'm going to, you know, this is from what I hear, for example, somebody I will see that has had limb loss, I will say, how did you lose your limb, for example? Mm -hmm. And they will say, well, they said that they needed to draw the blood back to my organ, so they needed to amputate my legs. Or I'll hear, well, my legs died, and so like it became gangrenous, they had to amputate my legs or my hands or whatever mm -hmm. that may be. So again, to me, there's still that, that explanation of, in, in, in amputee terms, all of our amputations was caused by a septic, a septic infection, I guess, if you want to say all it right. that way. So, so let's, let's take a step back. Let's talk about, for your audience, why some people require amputations when they have the worst form of sepsis, that is septic shock, need support with blood pressure medication. Sepsis and the clotting system in your bloodstream are completely linked together. When you start to fight an infection, it also triggers blood clotting systems. And the more or the longer or the more vigorous your immune system has to work to fight that infection, whatever it is, the more the clotting system may get activated. And it has to do with a cell we call the neutrophil. 
that white blood cell is responsible for engulfing most bacteria. It chews it up. And when there's so much infection that that bacteria can't control it, that neutrophil, that white blood cell, turns into a spider web. It releases its DNA, its nucleic acid in the center, out into a bloodstream, for example. And the problem is that release of that spider net, and that's exactly what we call them, we call them nets, um, activates more clotting and makes clots that can't be broken up. And we've got evidence that says that the sickest people in the ICU, if their amount of DNA in their circulation is really high, that's a really bad sign. We can do things to try and break up those clots, but treating that is extremely difficult. You're unfortunate, our dear friend Christine is unfortunate that you both had, and certain bacteria make that clotting system work worse. So Christine had a bacteria that's called capnophagia, okay? and it and a few other bacteria, some of which we have immunizations against, are known to really activate that clotting system very quickly. Okay, Sometimes it's a matter of time and presentation and your own immune system that that gets activated. And sometimes if we can forestall it early, we can reverse it. I have an example that I often use in teaching of a young woman who came in with probably the same infection that Christine had, but we worked really hard. And even though she had those poor, poor, perfused limbs, um, arms and hands, we managed to turn that around for her. That's all she ended up losing was a little baby pinky, right? Long stay in the ICU. So we need to figure out who gets that worst kind of septic shock with those limbs that are at risk and what we can do to reverse that from an amputee perspective. Um, I would also say that some people have an overwhelming response to infections. Children are classic for this. Many children who get sepsis may lose limbs or lose organ, other organ dysfunction. Right? Angelica Hale lost her kidney function sepsis right so i i think that we any organ is at risk limbs are one of those risks because the bloodstream the blood to that organ gets blocked with this overwhelming infection does that make sense aristotle yeah no absolutely i again yeah. a lot of things is is just kind of exploding in my head going oh okay that makes more sense right? now yeah. because again of what i was told when at the very young age of what I had, it's it's very much, I guess, wasn't explained that way. It was just explained that you got this and this is what resulted yep. in, in all of that. So, so you've mentioned a few times that it could be a preventable disease and getting on in front of the sepsis right away can prevent, to your point earlier, about just losing a toe instead of losing a limb four or limbs. all four limbs. Four right, limbs. exactly. Right. So you were instrumental in implementing the sepsis simulation education project to improve the teamwork in early detection and prevention of sepsis. Can you tell us more about that? And that's with HHS or the Hamilton Health, Health Sciences. Uh, Sciences. So um, this is a project that we did in the hospital, actually started as a student project where we were interested in improving the education. We do a lot of talking as an educator. I do a lot of talking, but 
talking doesn't always keep it solid in the brain. And we um, are now fortunate within the healthcare field to have medical simulators. They look like real people. The baby ones cry like real babies. And you can use those in a team setting to say, okay, if I have this patient looking unwell, they're not, they're confused, they're not making urine, they're starting to cough, whatever that happens to be, can I recognize them in the hospital? So this was really focused on us recognizing people who are already in hospital with another problem, and now let's make sure they're not septic. We did it on our oncology wards, we did it on our hematology wards, patients who are extremely risk of getting hospital-acquired infections, or because their immune system is not working well, infections due to their own bacteria. And then on our neurological service, because our neurosurgical service, because people who have brain injuries are also at risk of infection. Right. So this simulation is an actual sort of AI or a mannequin that's sort of... Yeah, it's a mannequin. And we go as a team and we give them a scenario when we pull different members of the team in and we would work our way through who do you have to call? What do you have to do? How, you know, do you have to get antibiotics? We'd have doctors and nurses and we had healthcare aides and we had pharmacists all a part of this team. And then we talked about it afterwards. One of the big things we talked about is something in the medical term called scope of practice. Who can do what? Who can... Who can put oxygen on if the oxygen is low? Who can start the intravenous? Who do you have to call if the patient's getting worse? Many of the hospitals in Ontario have rapid response teams or critical care response teams. So if you're out on the ward, do you call that team because that patient's getting sick, their blood pressure's low, you're going to need the, it's basically an ICU on wheels you bring the ICU on wheels team out there to have a look, see if we can turn things around, take them to the intensive care unit if you have to. Wow. So it, it completely gives that whole, the, the simulation gives that whole feeling of being with the actual patient as well. Yeah. Yeah. Simulating that, that's, that sounds promising if you, you know, if you're still doing this. And- yeah. Yeah. Well, so we, we kind of do something of a shorter version <laughs> Every year with all of our staff, we have a big education, basically like a, a education booth, shopping booth. So you go on one booth and next booth and that booth. And, and our, our educators and our team put the mannequin out and talk about that as a refresher each year. So, Oh, good. That's, that sounds really good. Now let's talk present time with COVID-19. I think there's that's recorded of COVID. And I'm sure the data says this person died of COVID. Now, the one that is ringing in my head is Nick Cordero, the Broadway actor who died Mm -hmm. because he was in hospital for, I believe, 40 days, had, in my mind, if you didn't label it COVID, was a septic shock. He had sepsis due to COVID. So COVID, like any other infection, those people who end up in intensive care have sepsis due to COVID. And we now understand that COVID does many of the same things. It's do- in fact, it's doing some really weird things. It's because I think our bodies have not seen this infection before. So the clotting things have been extremely abnormal. I've seen patients with blood clots in, in arteries, not just the vein, the vein supply. I've seen patients, certainly there's reports in the literature of those nets being formed 
in the lungs and in the blood vessels around the lungs. Um, and so it it's a sad story, but Nick's story, Nick Cordera's story just shows that COVID, like other infections, can cause sepsis and can be and is life-threatening. Just think about all of those people who required long-term life support in an intensive care unit with COVID all around the world. They all died of COVID-associated sepsis. They died of sepsis due to COVID. I think that's the better term of putting that in the headlines almost to yeah. really bring it forward. I think, yeah. No, that, that made more sense of a statement to me as the person died of sepsis due to COVID. To COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like there is a lot to be learned about this disease, especially with COVID-19. And we just talked about that. So let's explore Sepsis Canada then. Sepsis Canada recently received a 5.7 million investment from the federal government to the Canadian Institute of Health Research or CIHR. So can you explain to our listeners what Sepsis Canada is and the goals as a foundation? So Sepsis Canada is a research network. Okay. We have we have a we have a not-for-profit foundation which is the Canadian Sepsis Foundation, but ah. Sepsis Canada is a research network funded by the federal government for us to broadly understand, prevent, and find new treatments for sepsis, to educate both the public and healthcare professionals about sepsis and early recognition. We have 190 currently, and probably more to come, sepsis scientists, um, other patient other scientists who may have not worked in sepsis before but will help us move different patient populations through who um and patient partners so christine caron another amputee due to sepsis is one of our very valuable patient partners on there we've got a um, a lawyer by the name of ray schachter who's a patient partner ray had sepsis in the in the midst the late 70s um but and Ray's a lawyer, but he's a big sepsis advocate in BC. He's worked on the Global Sepsis Alliance, which is the big international advocacy group. And we have um, Catherine Hendrick, who lost her father to sepsis. He had um, prostate cancer, but what really killed him was repeated episodes of sepsis because he had stents in to allow him to pass urine. And she'd take him, she tells a lovely story when we introduce this, the network of taking him to different hospitals in the GTA area. And everybody had a different protocol and was treated differently when they came through the door. And then we have Ariana Paulini and Ariana lost her husband to sepsis due to an infection of a heart valve. Um, and so we have patient partners on there. And then the science, what are we planning on do? Well, first of all, we're going to train a new generation of scientists across Canada who have an interest in sepsis. And we're also going to train patients. We are going to take a group of interested patients or patient survivor, sepsis survivors or their family members, and we're going to train them to work with scientists and to learn how to do their own patient-centered research program quite innovative. There's a program, a lovely program called PACER in Calgary, and we're going to use that group to train some patients to think about sepsis. So training programs, first thing. 
And then the CIHR has four big mandates. One is the biomedical mandate. What is the basic knowledge we know about sepsis? We have a group of very enthusiastic young scientists who are using all of our tools of good biomedical research um, and trying to build models of sepsis before the patient. So animal models, studying it in the lab and move that so that we can think of new mechanisms, understanding mechanisms for them. They'll be paired with some trialists. And we have a large group across Canada of most critical care, mostly critical care physicians, ICU doctors, who've been working for more than 30 years doing trials in people in ICU. And we've partnered with them to start to think about how we do well-designed studies in septic patients. We're already doing that, but to really unite us across the country. So that's that end of it. But at the other end, remember we talked at the beginning about we don't really know how much sepsis exists in Canada. And so that's the population health piece of all of this. So currently, the only way we have outside of Quebec, because Quebec doesn't, is the Canadian Institutes of Health Information, CAIHI. And people, when they come to the hospital, they write sepsis on there and they try to sort it out from what's hospital acquired. You get it when you're in the hospital. It misses all those nursing home acquired and all of these other ones. And you got it in the community. You got a pneumonia, you got an infection, you got something on a wound, um, and you, you ended up with an infection and organs not working, and then you had to come to hospital. So we want to sort out all of that. We want to know who's at biggest risk. The government has asked us particularly because the um, one of the institutes is the Institute for Diabetes Metabolism. They've asked us to particularly focus on diabetics who may be at increase. Well, they definitely are. They, they have poor perfusion to their limbs. They have risk. Um, young type 1 diabetics particularly may get infections or colds. They're at risk for sepsis. So that we want to be able to understand that population well. We also want to be able to understand why people who are overweight, the obese, may or may not have risk for sepsis. There's something called the obesity paradox. So if you've got enough weight on board, it may protect you. We don't understand that well. I wouldn't say way, way overweight, but there's a critical point. If you don't have enough reserve um, and you get sick with sepsis, you may not have enough reserve to heal. So yeah, the too skinny is not good either. <laughs> too uh, <laughs> underweight's not good either. Um, and then in the middle of all of this is the knowledge transfer and the knowledge information. So we, we want to educate the public. We want to improve their literacy about sepsis. We want them to be able to come to the emergency department or go to their doctor and say, I have this infection or I'm not feeling well. I've got fever, chills. I know I think I've got infection. But in addition to that, I'm not making urine. I'm my I'm not tolerating food. I've got nausea or vomiting. I'm my loved one says I'm confused. I do I have sepsis, right? Our colleagues in the UK with the UK Sepsis Trust who are partners with us in Sepsis Canada, you can't go anywhere in the UK right now without seeing a poster or something in your doctor's office or in schools um, where 
there's education around sepsis. Could this be sepsis? And it's because that risk is so high and the, the symptoms can be nonspecific, that it, it could be something else, but could it be sepsis? I may have an infection. Is this sepsis? We want to educate the public. At the same time, we want to educate other health professionals. We want, um, we want staff in nursing homes. We want paramedics. We want emergency department staff all to say, we need to prioritize people coming through the door with sepsis. And particularly if they're in septic shock, we want to prioritize them the same way we would somebody coming through the door with a stroke and the same way we would somebody coming through with a a heart attack. We want equal priority for that because more people die of sepsis than die having a heart attack right now. Right. And we have to be able to distinguish. I have a virus like COVID for which antibiotics are going to do nothing. Right. Right. But, uh, or, or the flu where, yeah, you might have a, a, a flu. You might have a pill for flu if you were starting to look really unwell, but most of us can get through it versus I have the flu, but boy, something else happening. And now I I can't breathe. Um, Things are looking worse. And that's probably flu, sepsis, or it could be a secondary infection because a lot of people during flu season can get bacterial pneumonias Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what they get septic from. The flu makes their immune system down, and then those bacteria can come in. Can, can, right? can take over. Right? right, but it's educating It's educating people to say, okay, this person has an infection. Let's keep an eye on them. Let's make sure they're hydrated. Let's make sure they got good hand, hand hygiene. Let's hope that they're eating properly if they can eat. Um, but let's keep an eye on them because maybe their immune system's not going to be able to fight this as well. And they may need intravenous fluid and they may need um, antibiotics because there's a bacterial infection brewing or, you know, we watch for urinary tract infections, other things. Mm -hmm. Now, you touched on how there's lack of data in Canada. I wouldn't say there's lack. There's some data. There's some data. Okay. So uh, is the data true? Is the data reliable? That right. that high high data relies on all of my colleagues reporting properly or recording it properly. <laughs> I spent uh, some of us, my colleagues, have spent time going back through charts when we our hospital and all other hospitals, but our hospitals particularly, trying to dive down that hospital acquired sepsis rate, and and we've been going back and looking into the charts. And sometimes that wasn't hospital acquired. They came into the hospital with sepsis. Sometimes it wasn't sepsis. It was just an infection. They didn't have organ dysfunction with it. Sometimes it was preventable. Sometimes it wasn't preventable. And we need to sort all of those out. And sometimes it was there and we guessed wrong on the antibiotics. So the other problem with sepsis is... There are just building some companies that we can rapidly diagnose infections, but many infections still require the same technology we've been using for years, which is you try and grow the bacteria, decide what it's resistant to, if it's treated for antibiotics, and 
some of those bacteria don't grow well in the lab. They grow well in our body, but they don't grow well in the lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and developing tools so that we can rapidly diagnose all pathogens. So COVID, easy. It's a virus. You can look for the DNA. You do a little swab. We do that for all of our respiratory viruses. So a little swab, we can tell you. Some of our more common path bacteria, we can identify some of those with a bit of a swab. Get it? Grow it up quickly. We look for the pieces and say, yes, that is that bacteria. Some of the other ones takes a little more time, 24, 48 hours sometimes before mm-hmm. we know. So that means we often have to hit broadly and guess, right? And sometimes let's take somebody who comes in with appendix or problems with their bowels. We use a shotgun approach. I hate the word time. We use a broad approach, what we call broad spectrum. We use, um, we try to decrease as many of the potential bacteria as we possibly can. Right. So, but it's a guessing game sometimes for what we're using as for an antibiotic. We know what's out there. We know what our, what bacteria and the bugs are smart. The bacteria, many of them, you know, it's a balance between what the bacteria are present and how they've managed to acquire genes that make them resistant to the antibiotics that we have so um pseudomonas is a bacteria that um, can grow on surfaces and those things it's very common in hospitals um and at one time you know it it likes antibiotic resistance genes it kind of eats them like candy and so that bacteria Although it's not particularly virulent, that is, it, it doesn't cause big problems if you've got a healthy immune system. If your immune system's down a little bit or you've had changes to your immune system over time, that bacteria can be very hard to eradicate. As opposed to, you know, the staph aureus that we often hear about that gets in wounds and other things. Our body's immune system is pretty good with that, but we've had injury to our brain or other things, it can bypass that normal immune system. And then it can get into, it loves heart valves and bones and other things that it can grow in. So each bacteria has got a little bit of a a different twinge to it in terms of how we have to fight it. Mm -hmm. So now how do you propose to get the research going if we don't have this much data? Now we got to go into each hospital records from all of yeah, no, that's I don't even know how to begin. What our population health team is going to do, led by Alan Garland in Winnipeg and Claudio Martin at London, is they're going to use statistical data and multiple sources of data and multiple methods to see if we can come up with a better estimate of what is the true rate of sepsis in Canada. As we get more and more electronic health records in hospitals, we'll be able to be able to track that a little better. We'll start to use machine learning tools. We'll start to use artificial intelligence. I've got colleagues here at St. Joseph's in Hamilton. We just put in a big grant, a big team grant to start to do some of that within an electronic health record. But not every hospital and certainly not every big teaching hospital across the country has an electronic health record to be able to pull that together. 
you know, there are many places that are still working on the old paper system. And so building a new electronic health record is expensive as our hospitals going through to revise theirs. Um, but, you know, Alberta's fortunate. They have an, a completely electronic health record system across the province. We're going to use that. Um, we've got Ottawa, now St. Joseph's here, Hamilton Health Sciences has partial, will be going to full electronic. Um, we'll pull those data for those hospitals who have electronic system, um, the big ones, because many of those are big teaching hospitals to be able to pull some of that data in. We have other networks that bring data in. In Ontario, ISIS brings in that data. There's a, hopefully a publication coming out shortly from some of our scientists in Ottawa that'll give us a cost estimate analysis. And I don't want to steal Cadaver's thunder, but it's expensive. And it's expensive not only for that first year for people who survive sepsis, mm -hmm. but it, it extends beyond that. For at least five years more, people who survive sepsis cost the healthcare system thousands of dollars more than any other person coming into the healthcare system. Right, that's right. Again, as a survivor, get, I, yeah. I mean, that's the monetary costs, but you know, and I know, there's a lot of other costs. We're going to track the the lost work hours. We're going to track how much more you had to use the system, the impact on your families, the impact on um, work lost, your increased risk because now you have wounds and stuff and you have to be careful with your stumps and all of those other things for not getting infections and sepsis again. Our patient partner at Hamilton Health Sciences um, is a, a young teacher who happens to be missing her spleen. Um, and Barbara's talked about this and uh, but you know she now carries a little card with her that says, I'm missing my spleen. If I come to you and say I'm septic, this is my infectious disease physician and this is what you need to do, right? Because she has, she always, hasn't always been listened to. And it's that sort of, yeah, okay. It could be something else. No, I know what sepsis feels like in me. I don't have a spleen. Here's what I need, right? So the long-term cost, you know, she took a year almost to recover from one very, very bad bout where she was in the intensive care unit, right? So the co the cost is unbelievable for the survivors of sepsis, let alone the memory loss that can often occur, the cognitive loss. Um, this is out public knowledge. Again, one of our former nurses, um, you know, was a brilliant ICU nurse. She tells us that she lost her photographic memory. As a result of her sepsis episode, septic shock in the hospital. So memory changes and being able to go back to those jobs you may have had before. And then there are other things we don't know. Um, there's research by some of our colleagues in Edmonton that suggests if you get sepsis as a child, particularly as an infant, you're at risk for cardiovascular disease later on greater than anybody else because of that coagulation and disrupting that system it may make you more at risk for getting cardiovascular disease down the road as well wow so there's cost everywhere so prevention really is key in almost anything that we need to do is to prevent yeah that. so pre prevention prevention is 
if there's a vaccine for a particular infection, please get it. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is a generation who doesn't remember. And those of us who've got enough gray hair under there remember how you think COVID was bad? Measles is truly airborne. Measles kills young children. We've seen outbreaks, right? Diphtheria in the 1800s, young children dying of diphtheria. That's, that vaccine, tetanus is a ugly disease. All it takes is one, you know, one rusty nail, one scrape. Tetanus is horrid, right? That's a simple vaccine given as a child. Haemophilus influenza B, I have seen haemophilus. It's very much like capnophagia. You can lose limbs rapidly. Getting your flu vaccine, right? And when the COVID vaccine is finally produced and everybody's happy with it, hopefully we will have a vaccine for COVID, right? I still carry um, a smallpox vaccine. We've eradicated disease because we had vaccination for it, right? Smallpox just lives in highly contained (laughs) containers under the highest security because we don't want that back out now. Because right. there's a generation that's, uh, when would they have stopped? I don't know exactly when they stopped the smallpox vaccine, but certainly probably haven't had it in the last 50 years. But if that ever got out, right? Right. That'll be an, right? E- an even bigger one. To- yeah. The Gates Foundation is working very hard to eradicate polio. There's still some areas of the world where there's polio out there. But for all of those doubters, go look. Go read your history about how bad those infections and how those people died of sepsis due to those infections. So vaccination, clean drinking water, washing your hands if they're dirty, keeping your wounds clean, right? Um, Nutrition for your teeth. All of that are prevention strategies, right? Mm -hmm. And patient populations who know to be acutely acutely sensitive if they've got any infection so people undergoing chemotherapy they're taught to watch for fevers but unfortunately not everybody gets a fever when they're septic watch for fevers watch for feeling unwell those warning signs we need to know who's at highest risk so we're going to think about which populations are at highest risk and then educate those specifically so that they know gum to say i have an infection i'm starting to feel this way do i need this infection treated is it going to be bacterial that it should be treated or do i have a healthy enough immune system to get through it and we don't want to overwhelm our antibiotics i mean our our um our ears nose and throat doctors these days are saying you know most kids with their healthy immune systems can tolerate having ear infections they won't get septic. Their natural immune system will fight that. But we have to know which of those kids with those ear infections now are, okay, but if this starts to happen, then we're going to have to do something about it. We're going to have to give you antibiotics. We're going to have to bring you into hospital. You may be able to fight this bacteria because we fought bacteria without antibiotics for centuries, right? Right, right. But we need we need to be able to use those as a resource for those people who are getting septic. Okay. Right. So, yeah. There's got to be a ton of public awareness that needs to be done on sepsis. Yeah. 
I thought I was aware of sepsis, having gone through it myself. Yeah. But I don't think it's publicly talked about like we do, to your point earlier, the cancers, the heart disease, all of this are talked about, right? So... Aristotle, I'm so grateful for you for telling the story. I, I, I know that your amputee community, not all of them will have got, lost their limbs because of sepsis. Many of mm-hmm. them will have, but many of them will have been accidents or other things, but, right. or, or cancers or other things that they've lost their limbs to, um, um, or that it's been congenital. But mm-hmm. I think that amputees as a group, are, are certainly acutely aware of making sure that their stumps are healthy, right? That they're, that they're not getting abrasions with their appliances and their, their artificial limbs, right? And right. They're, they're aware of it. So I'm so grateful for you to asking us to talk about um, this with your community because that's one little message of, you know, I lost my limb or I had sepsis in my stump because of this. So, right. Right. Thank you for, for, you know, for being here, but let's go back to the clinicians part. You talked about in this network about 200 or so clinicians or scientists that will be joining you in this research and then going back to the community, the amputee community. So are you including, or are there members of, the amputee scientists, if you will, that will be participating or included in this umbrella of research that you're doing with sepsis? Ah, I don't know many amputee scientists, but we have a method. We have, we have a mandate to make sure that our community is diverse. So if you know some amputee scientists, connect them with me because Right. I would love to meet them and and for them to start thinking about education within communities. I mean, most of us say, you know, okay, we go start looking there if somebody who an amputee comes into the hospital. Okay, you know, is it because if you're wheelchair bound or is it a wound or something? We're always looking as healthcare professionals, but uh yeah, oh, I'd love to find an amputee scientist who'd love to join our community. We've already got Christine in there, but uh, as I will a connect to. I'd love to find an amputee scientist who would be yeah. interested in, in you know, in any one of our three teams, or even in the education portion with new sepsis scientists. No, I I can definitely connect you. So Thank I will you. get back to you on that. Just speaking of looking for people, so where can our listeners find information if they would like to become a patient partner or how to participate in this research? Do they go to you? Do they go to a website? Do they go? So I have had post this announcement, a bunch of emails that I need to send on to our managing director. We're in the process of hiring a communications director who part of their responsibility will to be to do that. We have a Twitter page. Sepsis Canada, mm-hmm. put your S capital, that, that'll be at Twitter, at Sepsis Canada with a capital S, it'll come up. Um, we have um, the Canadian Sepsis Foundation who gets on that is, um, we have a webpage for that. Um, and we have some patient stories on there that Christine's been working on. Um, Emails to me, um, my inbox gets about 100 a day. So if I don't get back to you quickly, it's because I've got university and hospital business to deal with. We're going to have to figure out some mechanism to, to make sure we pile those in. And we will have a Sepsis Canada website somewhere where we'll be able to 
interested scientists in joining. You know, the, the government, the money that the government gave us um, is for the first five years. We, we're going to be looking for partners who want to add to that funding. We're going to be asking our scientists to find new grant sources, new partners to be able to train other scientists. We're going to be um, hopefully extending beyond that five years for sure. We've got a plan for beyond that five years because we're not going to cure it. Most of the money is going to go to infrastructure, to setting up the network, but there will be pilot projects funded out of that to be able to, to start moving the science forward, right? You're going to start seeing before... Um, the U.S. is this one that has the sepsis month. We're going to have for World Sepsis Day um, and the Sepsis Week, we actually have an international congress that I'm participating, led, led with some of my colleagues in South and Central America, that's going to have scientists from around the world. It's called the World Sepsis Meeting. And there's another sepsis. So there's a lot of meetings going on, but you're going to see from us a bit of a, a social media blitz for over the next month for sepsis. Some scientist stories, some patient stories. You know, we'll link to your story when this when this uh, podcast comes out, we'll post it on ours so that we can just, all of us connect and spread those stories around so that uh, people have a better, and I think social media is what's gonna get particularly to our young people. If I have a message for the young people right now, it's like, I'm looking at our rates. I'm looking at Toronto's rates right now. It's all of the COVID out there is in the under 30 demographic for the most part, right? Be careful out there, please. Don't think you're immune and don't think that you might not be giving it to somebody else that you love. The the, the one thing that's scary about COVID, like typhus a century ago, is there are asymptomatic people out there. And they're spreading it, right? Don't take that physical distancing for granted. If somebody's not in your bubble, please don't spread it. Right. I think we're fortunate that in general, unless there's a problem with the child's immune system, most children have been getting through COVID relatively unscathed. Um, coronavirus, the same virus, we have a cold virus that goes through. You know, we don't even measure it before all of this. But... Um, we know that, you know, there's reports in the literature of 20-year-olds needing double lung transplants. Um, there are definitely 18-year-olds who, this crazy U.S. COVID parties where an 18-year-old died, went to a COVID party, right? Just crazy stories out there. And right. uh, I, uh, you know, stay safe, everyone. Yeah, people just have to look out for one another. Well, I'm really excited to read the result of your research. I think research provides tangible data that can be used to argue cost in short and long-term patient care and, of course, quality of life. In my own health bouts and experience, federal and provincial healthcare funding is always short-sighted. We tend to fund the now instead of preventative care. So I have high hopes for your research to give sepsis similar focus to prevent 75,000 cases each year here in Canada. Remember folks, September is Sepsis Awareness Month and we're lucky to have Dr. Fox Robichold with us today to give us an insight into this deadly disease and the research they're doing to help prevent, diagnose, treat, and help survivors. 
live their best lives. I want to thank Dr. Alison Fox for the show for joining me today. I'll post the links about the Sepsis Canada National Research Network on my website, www.aristotledomingo.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The Amputeo Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The Amputeo Show Podcast.